Hello and welcome to the first Talking Finance of 2018. I'm David Thornton. This week, Craig Emerson, former Labor Trade Minister, Managing Director of Craig Emerson Economics and Adjunct Professor of Victoria University's College of Business, ponders elections, the May budget and the failure of our pollies to communicate to the masses. Chris Weston, IG's Chief Market Strategist, takes a look at what's been going on market-wise over the past few weeks. Tim Lawless, CoreLogic's Research Director, examines whether house prices are set to drop. And Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, gives me the lowdown on trending sectors, drones, bots and crypto. Joining me now is Craig Emerson, former Labor Trade Minister, Managing Director of Craig Emerson Economics and Adjunct Professor at Victoria University's College of Business. Craig, we've got a year of elections coming up, both state and federal. What do you expect the time frame to be between them, especially as it relates to Turnbull's strategic thinking? I think there'll be a, a pretty continuous flow of elections. We know that there'll be a, a Victorian election later in the year. Uh, in November, there will be at least one by-election and potentially many, uh, one in the seat of Batman. There's also a state election in South Australia. So, and I think that there's a very good chance of a federal election because um, next year there's a New South Wales state election in March and that means that Malcolm Turnbull would have to call a federal election on the heels of that state election and people probably be pretty sick of all the campaigning, you know, and he has to go by the middle of the year. So there'll be a lot of pressure on Malcolm to go earlier, and I think that could be in the last two or three weeks of August of this year. So we could be electioneering, you know, from uh, here to eternity, the way it's going, uh, but, but it will actually affect the way governments think. Um, that's just a truism. Uh, and the truth is that they will be thinking about re-election rather than long-term economic reform. And we probably saw a bit of that with uh, the early New Year attacks on the turn uh, the Andrews government over African street gangs, you know, mm-hmm. African mean black, you know, different from us, street gangs, terror, horror. Uh, so, you know, this is where the federal government seems to be heading uh, just trying to really create a lot of division and controversy so as to um, somehow, hopefully, in their minds, lift their stocks in the electorate. Let's talk about the May budget uh, for a second. It seems the government has sure. two diametrically opposed objectives, one to reduce the deficit and two to reduce income tax. How will they achieve this? Can they yeah. achieve this? I guess my question is, where's no, the money going to come from? Yeah, they can't achieve it. And uh, I mean... It, any any government can try to make itself popular by offering uh, personal income tax cuts. I mean, this is not uh, yeah, wizardry. Um, people like the idea of having more money in their pockets. The question is whether the government in making that offer is actually saying to future taxpayers who don't have a vote at the coming election, you can pay the bill. <laughs> and that's really what the proposition would be uh, if the government said that it would fund these tax cuts uh, by increasing the budget deficit. Uh, so the only prospect really is really around 2021 when the government projects, and I mean projects, a budget surplus. And that's based on an assumption of return to uh, uh, trend growth and actually a bit better, plus strong wages growth. That's the assumptions that they've got into have this surplus bobbing up 
in 2021. And they might then say, well, we'll offer tax cuts in 2021. The problem is people say, wow, that's a long way away. Um, otherwise, they have to increase the deficit to fund it. And, you know, I don't know how they're going to justify that, given that I think there's a fairly broadly accepted view that, um, you know, the budget is not on a sustainable path back to surplus. Stepping back a bit, Craig, what can this current generation of politicians who seem to be so beholden to the 24-hour news cycle do to build consensus among a body politics suffering from the kinds of economic security and cultural anxieties we see today? You know, both sides of politics seem yeah. completely captured by this short-termism. Well, there, there seems to be an incapacity to develop a story and stick to it. Uh, so we... Over the last few years, we've had budget emergencies and then, no, there's no budget emergency. Everything is all right. So we're back on track. Everything's fine. Oh, no, there's a budget emergency coming our way again. And so the public has been receiving no clear signal from the government as to what the economic challenges are confronting the country. I mean, it would be difficult to summarise that. Um, they, you know, they had a... Uh, a slogan of jobs and growth, a three-word slogan, and now that three-word slogan is going to be replaced by let's keep Australia working. But that a slogan is not a strategy, and you don't need to take my word from that. Malcolm Turnbull said that when he was defeating Tony Abbott for the prime ministership, but I don't know what the story is. So how could the Australian people know what the story is? Therefore, maybe the pol political class itself has submitted itself to the 24-hour media cycle. It doesn't need to, but maybe it just thinks that that's easier or hard to resist. It's really hard to get into their minds, but all that really needs to be done is a political party, in this case the government, um, developing story and sticking to it, and the public will follow. But what, are, what on earth is the public following at the moment? It's just a, a bunch of slogans and, and changed... Um, analyses of what the challenges are that confront Australia. Is the onus on politicians exclusively or does a bit of it have to do with the media's focus and whether they focus on long-term policy uh, stories as opposed to what's happening day-to-day? Uh, -day? The media has become pretty atomised. Uh, so it's not really a matter of, you know, two or three media owners deciding, you know, what approach is taken to the media. With social media, that has a big impact Anyway, so I, I, I don't think that we can um, hope or expect that the media will change, but it's no big task, actually, for the government and, indeed, you know, all politicians to say, this is our story and we're sticking to it and fill out the details of the story over time. I mean, this is not kind of rocket science, uh, and we know that former leaders such as Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, did that. John Howard at least had a story. Um, but since really, um, I guess, the Abbott years, which was just all about negativity and what, you know, the political parties opposed rather than what they proposed, then we've lost our way. Joining me now is Chris Weston, Chief Market Strategist at IG Markets. Did any significant local market data come out over the Christmas New Year's break? 
Not really. I mean, we haven't been focused too much on what was going on in um, the Australian data points. I think probably most of it was uh, about momentum and what was happening in the equity markets globally and, and I think really you know, what was happening in some of the China data and, and US data as well. So we ever, I don't think we got anything that, that, that significantly um, you know, changed the needle in, in terms of Australian economics. And you know, I think we're still looking forward to an economy this year which is going to grow probably in the quarters ahead you know, probably somewhere above 2.3 into 3%, depending on which quarter you're looking at. So yeah, I think uh, no no real major data which which has changed uh, any of the needles or, or changed the dial, but uh, certainly a focus on global economics, which I think, you know, are in quite an inspiring position at the moment. So what about global economics? There seems to be a fair bit of focus at the moment on the US dollar. Well, global economics, um, I mean, certainly Europe uh, remains the poster child of, of, of an economic success story for 2007. But I think if we're, if we're sort of spilling out into into the new year, I mean, we can look at it twofold. One is the manufacturing numbers we've been seeing. And I think you, you can go to the ones we saw in the US, um, where the PMI series is, you know, pushing multi-year highs, new order subcomponents is trading at the highest level, or is it, the index is at the, the highest level since 2004. Uh, you've got good expansion in European PMIs, good expansion in UK PMIs. Uh, China's uh, economics are, are seeing good growth in service, uh, the service sector where we saw that at 55. Um, so I think in terms of global growth at the moment, we're probably pushing towards 4% for the year, which is probably going to outpace what we saw last year, which was getting into sort of 3.8%, I think. Uh, which is in itself the highest level since 2010. So I think global growth is in a pretty inspiring spot. I think some people will say, okay, fine, um, it started off with, you know, with a credit binge, but I think we are seeing signs of genuine animal spirits kicking in. The other way to look at this is, is while we are seeing um, you know, manufacturing and, and businesses invest, um, are we seeing signs of inflation? And of course, if we are going to see higher volatility throughout 2018, it has to come through higher inflation expectations. And ultimately, when the lag effect kicks in after that, then you know, maybe we see signs of, of, of inflation. We're already seeing signs of inflation at a, at a business level with PPI in Japan nicely above 3%, PPI in, or producer price inflation in China uh, above 6%. In the US, it's moving higher. Uh, will this now manifest itself into the consumer? And I think if we start seeing consumer prices moving higher, and it feels like they should be moving higher, then um, you know I think uh, bond markets will sell off and real yields will probably move higher and uh, equities will probably have to pay a higher premium for that inflation risk that's coming through. What might the key contributors be to that rising global inflation? You know, you have uh, China carrying production capacity and US wage pressures also on the up. Well, I mean... Um, Let's, I think the first and foremost is that the inflation itself is a lagging indicator and, and depending on the country will depend on the lag. But if we work on the assumption that it's around about sort of 10 to 12 month lag, um, you know, there's a lot of asset price inflation that's been in the system for some time. And we, we, you just listen to any Fed speaker and they'll talk, talk to you about one of the things why they want to raise rates is, is to mitigate um, the financial or to look at financial stability, which means you know that there's too much asset price inflation building up in the system. And people like Bill Dudley, who runs the, who ran the New York Fed, uh, has written a number of white papers around the connect between um, higher asset prices over a period of time and the real economy and the inflation risk there as well. So we think that's going to happen. We also take the view that the Philip curve is not dead. Um, and that as the US unemployment rate drops probably below 4%, um, 
you know, we will start seeing wage pressures pick up a little bit from here. And I think as we go into next year as well, the base effects kick in as well from around March. And that just means from a structural perspective, the base effects will, will mean that we're going to see higher inflation numbers coming through. And of course, the Fed have changed themselves to, to, to PCE or personal consumption expenditures, which are heavily weighted by healthcare and some of the changes that we've seen from the tax uh, tax reforms suggest that people uh, who are healthy individuals uh, don't have to necessarily have uh, health cover, and that could see premiums going up, which could see core PCE rising as well. So I think, um, you know, depending on the country, we are, you know, inflation is a lagging indicator. With asset price inflation in the economy um, and global growth so strong and commodity price inflation obviously kicking in, we're seeing that at a producer price inflation level. Um, whether the consumer pays that is something that the markets are debating. But if we see it kick up with wage inflation and, and a belief that the Phillips curve is not completely dead, um, then, yeah, of course, I think you can see a situation where, where inflation will rise. Now, we don't think it's going to be 1970s, early 1980s type inflation, but relative to very sanguine market pricing for inflation, um, you know, we could see it rise. And, and I think you know, markets could look to reprice themselves. And I think if you're in, um, in the equity market, being long value stocks over growth stocks, I think might make some sense in that environment. You note your view that the Phillips curve isn't dead. What about locally? Will 2018 see unemployment and inflation return to their inverse relationship here in Australia? Well, I think, I think the RBA has been pretty happy with the way that the unemployment's been going, and I think most most economists would say that that's, that's the case. And, you know, we don't expect to see um, unemployment drop too dramatically from there, um, but we do we do see it holding current levels, and, and that's been something that's been a bit of a, a success story through 2016, 2017, is the employment uh, situation. Um, whether that actually leads to a, a genuine shortage of, of labour which picks up the... the um, uh, you know the, the Phillips curve, and, and we, we see um, wage pressures coming through is, is, is obviously another situation. But we, yeah, we think that the unemployment rate is going to stay fairly steady. Um, I think the big misdemeanor in, in Australia is, is the housing market. Um, we are already seeing price pressures cooling, or prices cooling the Sydney market. If we start seeing them uh, move significantly lower, which is we, we don't believe is going to happen, and, and certainly we. Yeah, we're still seeing a fairly strong Melbourne property market. But if we were to see the housing market come under stress, um, then I think that's going to have a big impact on construction. And I think the construction sector will lead to a higher unemployment rate in Australia. But as I say, that's not our base case. But I think everything, you know, if you're looking at household spending, which, of course, was a big concern for the RBA in the recent statement, um, you know, I think that the, the elephant in the room in Australia remains housing. And as long as housing can stay stable, um, then I think you know, with the unemployment rate where it is at the moment, you know, we should be looking probably at an argument of, of higher interest rates uh, in Australia. Um, and my base case is that we, we, we see the cash rates staying on hold uh, with a possibility um, that they raise rates uh, in the Q3 change. But, uh, you know, there's obviously a bit of data we need to see before that point. Um, but the idea that they're going to cut the cash rate at this stage seems um, less likely than raising. And I think yeah, that's where we go. But I think they'll be looking uh, to raise rates probably into the back end of next year, probably about Q3, and, and that will probably coincide with with some signs of wage pressure. I certainly does look like the wage, um, you know, the, the sort of year-on-year -year wage numbers we've been seeing have troughed, um, but we're not expecting them to move significantly higher up either. Here's Tim Lawless, Research Director at CoreLogic. National dwelling prices fell 0.3% in December. Is this a worthy prelude to what we should expect in 2018? It probably does set the scene 
uh, to some extent for 2018. In fact, when we look at the trend over 2017, it was really characterised mostly as a slowing market. It wasn't until uh, the December quarter that we started to see values just starting to drift a little bit lower, down 0.3% over the final quarter of the year. And I think we will continue to see that slowing trend and some negative movements, uh, at least over the first half of 2018. And that's mostly going to be led by weakening conditions in Sydney and to a lesser extent Melbourne. How will house prices fall? Are we, are we talking about a cliff or a modest downward slope? What do you think? Our view is that this will be a very controlled slowdown. I think we're still seeing a lot of factors that are likely to, to, to put a floor under housing prices. Primarily, that's going to be a continuation of very low mortgage rates, particularly for owner-occupiers, but also population growth remains very strong. That's creating demand for housing. Uh, there's a few supply issues around some inner-city apartment markets, but overall, uh, housing supply remains relatively low relative to, to the very high population growth and migration rates. And then, of course, you've also got some of the other markets uh, that are likely to provide a little bit of positivity to the headline figures. Markets like Brisbane, Adelaide uh, are likely to continue on their, their fairly consistent growth path. And it looks like Perth is getting closer to actually bottoming out as well after a fairly sustained downturn. So just speaking to Melbourne and Sydney, should house prices fall through 18? Do you expect the two cities to move together or, or diverge in some way? I think they will move uh, fairly broadly in, in, in fairly similar um, direction, uh, which is which is either very weak growth or, or negative growth. We have seen Melbourne a lot more resilient to a slowdown and, and a negative reading relative to Sydney. But December did see a very subtle fall in Melbourne dwelling values. They were down 0.2% over the month. So it looks like Melbourne is lagging Sydney a little bit. And uh, that can probably be attributed to factors like stronger population growth, stronger jobs growth, and less of an affordability hurdle in the Melbourne marketplace. But it does look like uh, Melbourne is certainly uh, um, slowing down fairly much in line with Sydney, but, uh, but probably just a bit behind that, um, that, that trend that Sydney's already set. What are the main uh, variables uh, at play here? You mentioned new supply. There's also tighter bank lending conditions and uh, also increases for interest charge on loans for investment. Well, I think the main driver of the slowdown at the moment is very much credit related. So we saw very similar conditions uh, amongst the first round of macro financial changes that APRA introduced back in December 2014 although it wasn't until late 2015 and early 2016, they actually saw dwelling values starting to slip lower. Uh, but of course, that, um, that, that weakness in the marketplace was very temporary. We saw uh, um, the, the, the two cash rate cuts in May and August of 16 really did result in, in the market seeing as some resurgence, as well as the fact that lenders met their 10% uh, credit growth spiel limit for investment lending. So those two factors really didn't see a rebound in the market, and I don't think we'll see a repeat of those uh, that, that lifeline, so to speak, in 2018. So I think kind of credit conditions, as you mentioned, with particular focus on, on investment lending and interest-only lending, so investors well and truly paying a, a premium for, for the loans, about 60, 60 basis points at the moment. But I think another factor in the marketplace as well was, was simply affordability. When you look at Sydney being the most unaffordable market, you know, a, a backdrop of, of values rising by about 70% the last five years, whereas wages growth has been tracking at around about 2% uh, year on year. So you can see that affordability constraints have really also added to uh, um, just a, um, a dampening of demand. 
Joining me now is Steve Samartino, author and futurist. Steve, let's start broadly. Uh, what are your key predictions for 2008 and 18? Which industries are on the up and which are, are set for darker days? I really think that we're going to see the continuation of the big technology monopolists and, and increasingly uh, the big players from the US that are infiltrating our market. You know, I think of Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, they will just continue to go from strength to strength uh, in this industry. And anything that they can eat up uh, are the ones that uh, need to be a little bit worried. So I would think that we'll continue to see uh, a lot of power within uh, that tech industry. And the reason for that is they're really a new age infrastructure. So in many ways, they're building the meta structure that is the new economy. And they own those assets. And ostensibly, everyone else is renting out access to customers on their assets. So the real question is, if you're renting out the assets from those guys, then you're at risk because you're growing some vegetables in someone else's garden. And if you're one of these big tech players that has a platform more than a product, then you'll continue to grow. Few things visually signify the future more than drones, and they've become completely uh, ubiquitous from the battleground to the backyard to the postal service or soon to be. The list goes on. Where do you see them flying from here? No pun intended. Well, you know, I actually think that we're probably going to see more innovation from drones uh, from very small operators on a localised level. Uh, the Although the regulation is moving quite quick uh, within the drone realm, and I'm, I'm working with Industry Standards Australia on the new out-of-line-of-sight uh, regulations for drones in this country, but I think we're going to see some permissionless innovation within drones where small micro-businesses in their local area use them for logistics and delivery, simply because most innovations that happen, happen fast and and in a uh, permissionless environment. So I think we're probably going to see small operators taking advantage of the capacity of these drones to fly anywhere, deliver payloads, you know, up to five kilos for a drone that's maybe under $1,000. So you're probably going to see some of that before the big players that have promised drone delivery actually get running. It probably won't be this year, I don't think, other than a few tests. But I would be surprised if we don't see some small operators, and I'll I'll give my own pun, doing this underneath the radar so that uh, they can just innovate within that area. So that's actually one of the things that I'm expecting to see this year. Is Australia's airspace uh, regulated at all uh, as far as drones are concerned, or is it uh, the Wild West at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit Wild West, but we have regulations at the moment. So the regulations for drones are basically anyone flying a drone on on a commercial basis needs to have a license to undertake that. Uh, We don't have drone uh, possibilities of delivery or doing anything that's outside of line of sight. So all operations at this time need to be within the line of sight of the drone operator. If you're a non-commercial user of the drone, you have to be not within uh, an airspace, a regulated airspace. You need to be uh, flying the drone underneath 400 feet which, you know, most drones can go up to five kilometres that you can buy, you know, just in a department store. So that's a, that's a little bit of a worry. And uh, you need to be able to, you know, operate the drone, not where there's any large populations of people. And so they're the regulations as they sit at the moment, which are, are fairly open to interpretation. And the challenge, of course, is that most drones have capacities well beyond the regulation. So, you know, just a, a classic DJI drone that you can buy for about $1,000. Most of them can go about five kilometres, fly for about 40 minutes, and maybe even carry up to about three kilos if you attach something to them. So the capacity of the drones is um, well beyond what the regulations are. Uh, thankfully, we haven't had t- 
too many issues of people using them or anyone getting hurt with them. Uh, but uh, the new outside line of sight flying uh, is what we're developing this year. And so next year, people will be able to get licenses to do commercial deliveries um, with drones you know, up to a few kilometres. So w- when you say line of sight, does that imply line of sight of a human with their finger on the joystick or uh, line That's of right. sight from, exactly the launch, from the launch site? Uh, no, line of sight from the person who is controlling the drone. So you need to be able to see the drone at all times with your with your eyes while you're operating. You can move because obviously the joystick is mobile and the, the control panel you can take with you and move with it. Uh, so that's that's the current regulation for anyone who doesn't have a commercial operating license. So I, I get uh, I, commercial operating. I guess the paradigm shift then will be when uh, this stuff is all automated. Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, there are drones right now, and, and even the basic ones that you buy, can you can set a flight path without you operating it now, and you can do that on the map and say, I want to fly to this point, to point A, to point D, to point C, and, and, and come back. So that already exists, and you can do that, uh, but it still needs to be within line of sight. So this is where the technology and the regulations are lagging behind the possibilities of the technology, which is pretty much always the case with, with, with new tech. But drones, their capacity is increasing rapidly i mean a drone today uh six years ago would have been 142 times more expensive so one thousand dollar drone today just six years ago would have been 142 thousand dollars worth of technology so that's how much they're improving it's exponential closely related what's your view on robots i read that you expect them to be pouring out macchiatos in the not too distant future (laughs) yeah if you see some of the developments that we've had from boston dynamics and other uh, robot manufacturers uh a, a lot of the bots, are, they're becoming very, very advanced. Now, what we need to understand is that there's a delineation between the types of bots. So you have bots that pervade our everyday existence on the internet. So that's you know algorithms and information that uh, robots, from an informational perspective, influence our lives. But the bots that I think most people are thinking about now that, that worry people are the humanoid-style bots. And you know, Boston Dynamics put out a video a couple of months ago showing one of their robots doing a backflip. You know, which is yeah, quite incredible. It's very human. And again, that technology is increasing radically. I, look, I don't expect to see bots replacing people uh, dramatically you know, within the probably three to five years. But I think what we're going to see is them popping up in places a little bit like self-drive cars do, uh, where we see them being and, and working in real-life situations where people are doing repetitive tasks. We'll probably see robots pop up everything from warehouse distribution centers and retail organizations. And, and actually, in some ways, there'll probably be a little bit of a marketing ploy where people come and watch the robot and do something, you know, the mechanical turp of the modern age. So we'll probably see a little bit of that in the new year. Uh, but, but I think that um, before we see them on mass or swarms of robots, you know, doing tasks where you know, many humans were, I don't think we'll see that on mass for, for a few years yet. But surely the the tech's already there. I mean, in factories everywhere, you know, when you manufacture a car, you have robots putting the doors on and and the rest of it. Surely that technology can be easily transplanted into the cafe, to use use your example. Yeah, that's right. And and what you can do is that the technology is already there to to do a lot of the things that humans do. But this is where the financial element needs to come into it. So while the technology might be there that we use, you know, robotic arms and so on in a manufacturing enclave, what we've got is the return on investment uh, is is there. But when you're talking about 
replacing someone who's earning $20 an hour that has you know, inordinate human flexibility versus a robot that might cost 100000 to purchase, then it actually is less about the capability of the robot and more about when the robots get to a price point where they're affordable. And we saw that same uh, pricing curve with home computers and smartphones and so on. It's less about the technology having the capability and more about capability and the price point and the return on investment for investing in the technology, hitting that that crossover point where it becomes profitable to invest in automation within that. And in large-scale manufacturing, it's, it's quite easy to, to cross that threshold or that chasm where it's worth the financial investment in the bot, whether or not it's a humanoid bot or you know robotic arms and actuators doing the movement. So that's probably why we, we can see the capacity of the robots to do all sorts of human-like activities, but the cost of the bots at this point in time uh, doesn't preclude them from you know, replacing humans because they're just too expensive at this stage. But that's where that exponential growth can uh, or cost improvement ratio can catch some businesses unaware because as soon as someone adopts it and that price of the bot is acceptable to replace a human, that's when you tend to see it implemented within the marketplace. The world uh, is in the midst of crypto fever uh, at the moment. What's your general view <laughs> on cryptocurrency and what are your predictions for it uh, through 2018 to the extent that anyone can predict this madness? Yeah, okay. So predictions are obviously fraught with danger, but I'm going to come straight out and give everyone one straight from the heart. I think cryptocurrency will continue its boom into 2018 and surprise and flummox the pundits on where it can go. But there'll be one little difference. I don't think it'll be Bitcoin that's going through the roof. I think because we have so many investors who are suffering from FOMO, the fear of missing out, and many, I'll use the word unsophisticated investors who maybe don't understand the underpinning technology of crypto, they will just go on to one of the other coins that seems cheaper than Bitcoin. And of course, as you know, it's very difficult to price an asset class which doesn't have a yield and is only based on trust and expectation. So I think that what we'll see is coins like Ripple and Ethereum and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash take the place of inordinate growth that Bitcoin had this year as people transition to you know, equivalent of the next mining stock, let's say, or the next dot-com stock. Instead of investing in pets.com, it'll be boo.com or amazon.com. And I think that we'll probably see the entire crypto market grow, but the shift towards other coins where people are just looking to speculate. And there's just so much interest and so much upside in the speculation that I think the fever will continue. Uh, so... That's what I think will happen, but I do think we'll have a, a, a crypto crash, like we had a dot-com crash in uh, you know, April 1999, I think was the, the high point of the dot-com boom. And interestingly, you know, it took Amazon another eight years before it got to its dot-com boom price point on its share. So we're probably going to see that as well, where cryptocurrencies crash. But the underpinning technology, I think, is inevitable, and it will come and it will reshape our financial economy in years to come. But I think that because there's been such rapid growth in the asset class and we don't have the stability in the price point, they won't be used as a currency until we get a level of stability and maybe you know something else happen within that market. But I think we'll see a crash and then you know, a number of years later it will come up and create the revolution that it promised. But I think this year it will grow. Happy birthday, David Bowie, who would have turned 71 this coming Monday. Here's my favourite song, Space Oddity. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. 
Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven, six, commencing countdown engines on. That's it for Talking Finance. I'm David Thornton. Have a great weekend.